They told me I use my mouth good. So I started a podcast. Welcome to the first episode of Iconosass Peters Out for 2019. I am still pushing forward with this series, and I hope to have it wrapped up pretty soon here. I'm just taking my sweet time getting through these sweet, sweet chapters of our favorite man, our favorite lobster daddy, Jordan B. Peterson. So in this episode... I'm going to be tackling rule five, which is do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Now, that's a long title to an okay point that doesn't get touched on a whole lot in this chapter. He gives like some kind of common sense, common sense, I guess, parenting tips, but you got to wade through a lot of bullshit in this chapter. Like, a lot. That doesn't have anything to do with raising children, but really more to do with his animosities towards things that don't actually exist. And if you're wondering if this is a theme, you're right. Worrying about things that don't exist, that's a thing that conservatives like to do a lot. And while there are people across the whole political spectrum who tend to worry about things that aren't actual problems, man, it sure is pronounced on on one side. I think we live in very different realities. Anyway, let's dive into this chapter because and and by the way, uh, why should you listen to me? I don't have kids, nor do I want them. Well, I agreed that I would do this podcast, and I, despite being a barren monster, have some opinions about how to raise children, considering I was one at one point, if you can believe it. So, (laughs) 
a lot of this chapter is anecdotes, and it's all about Jordan Peterson flexing on children. So <laughs> he starts off with an anecdote about a kid who's a three-year-old boy screaming violently in the airport. And this is a scene that I'm sure is familiar to a lot of people and is an uncomfortable one. I don't care for screaming children in public at all. It's actually extremely annoying to me. But I understand that not everything is in your control. Unlike, I guess, what Jordan Peterson thinks, which is like, if you just follow the right rules, then everything will be in your control. And we're going to see where he trips up on his own premise a little bit later in the thing. But first, this anecdote, which I highlighted, where this three-year-old is screaming and his parents were, you know, n not really doing much to stop it. And he's saying, well, they needed to do something. Um, and he goes, he goes, you might object that perhaps they were worn out and jet lagged after a long trip. But yeah, that's actually what I would think. I, I would think that the parents are probably just like fucking done with their kid screaming and they don't like it either. And I'm sure they're not thrilled that other people aren't thrilled, but uh, I don't know, man. I've seen some monsters, and they just, I don't know, it doesn't seem like any type of parenting really works for some children, as far as discipline and stuff, because some of them are just going to be little unruly monsters. I don't know. I don't make the rules. So it's just observations. And he kind of says the same thing in this book, by the way, um, but he has a kind of different tack to it and he goes more thoughtful parents would not have let someone they truly cared for become the object of the crowd's contempt now this is cute to me because he thinks he can control these situations he thinks he can control not only the behavior of these unruly children which i mean sometimes you can sometimes some children listen to certain adults better than others and all that but that you can control the crowd's contempt for your child by doing the right behaviors. That's interesting to me. That speaks to a level of externalized control that I don't really even understand because I don't think you can control what other people think about you. You can do your best to, I guess, not offend them and not piss them off and hopefully make them not have contempt for you. But there's really only so much you can actually do. And again, this fits into his whole paradigm of thinking that he can order the chaos of society around him. And you really don't. You really only have limited control over your own actions. You do not have control over the perceptions of other people. But that's cute that he thinks he can control it and that he tells other people that they can control it too. So again, a lot of this chapter is a lot of anecdotes. That's kind of the first one. And it kind of lays out the whole, well, if they truly cared about their kid, you know, to to take one instance like that in isolation and say that they hate their children and they you know you know want other people to hate their child too is just really leaping he, he he's and he does this a lot in this chapter this is probably where i've seen it the most pronounced he'll take a 
take a point and then like stretch it so far past its re- reasonable conclusion that you're just kind of left scratching your head and you're just, and you're also like wow that really escalated quickly because uh we weren't talking about contempt we went from like here's a child who's misbehaving you know people are probably mildly annoyed to like oh my god the whole crowd hates him and the parents hate him because they're not stopping him from doing the things that make other people hate him Whew, lad. All right. But <laughs> that's one of the first anecdotes. And I'm just like, okay, you think you could do this. this? That's interesting. So he, oh man, he, he really, the, it's, it's one thing to criticize a variety of parenting styles. That's not what he does in this chapter he cri- he focuses on one specific type of parenting style and really just like tries to hammer it home throughout the entire chapter but we're going to dive into some statistics and we're going to dive into s- to see if the claims that he's making here have any basis in reality because we're going to find that he's making a lot of claims that he doesn't even source that he just feels is right because things are different than the way that they were when he grew up, which is not a basis for reality. And it's not a basis for accurately measuring cultural change over time. So let's go to another anecdote. We go a little bit down. Uh, (laughs) He starts talking about another child who hits his sister and the mother immediately grabbed the the boy who hit his sister and said no that's bad but like also like kind of gave him some nurturing you know tendencies like patted him on the head and like gave him mixed signals and apparently apparently this is this is really too much this is what he says about this mother she was out to produce a little god emperor of the universe that's the Oh, and this is, oh my god, I love this generalization about mothers, which he does this, by the way. By the way, he focuses on mothers a lot in this t- in this chapter, too. He focuses on the problem of mothers and the problem of too lax parenting. Two things that we have seen zero evidence for, you know, why, why anyone should be putting the blame on these people, according to cultural norms. We're going to get into that in just a second. He goes... That's the unstated goal of many a mother, including many who consider themselves advocates for full gender equality. Wait a second. We weren't talking about full gender equality. We were talking about raising children. Where does this ideology come into? Oh, that's because he has an agenda. (sighs) He goes on. Such women will object vociferously to any command uttered by an adult male, but will trot off in seconds to make their progeny a peanut butter sandwich if he demands it while immersed self-importantly in a video game. Wow, that's an oddly specific example, isn't it? Hmm. It's almost like he has some really oddly specific resentments instead of any data-backed points that he's making. That's probably because he does. I would like to find all this, you know, this widespread cultural problem of these feminist mothers who are complete slaves to their little boys who are playing video games. I I would like to find that statistic somewhere. I'm sure these women exist. You know, I've maybe met, 
like zero in my life, but what do I know? I mean, I'm sure they exist. They definitely exist in Jordan Peterson's imagination. And also, I just love that he he picks that specific example after telling an anecdote about a toddler. Like, wait, is this toddler also just already immersed self-importantly in video games and, like, already acting like a teenage boy who lives in his mother's basement? I'm not understanding where this oddly specific, very uh, venomous example came from, from the example he just stated. It's almost like... He has these really specific resentments towards women and specifically ones who call themselves feminists. And he, I don't know if they do something weird to his pee-pee or if, I don't know what his problem with them are, but we'll probably discover it, you know, eventually throughout this book. You know, if we're going to be psychoanalyzing this guy a little bit. But this is this is the first example that I'm talking about that pops up where here he is talking about an anecdote and then boom, all of a sudden it's like the problem of feminism and cultural Marxism and it's destroying society. And it's like, whoa, 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 hold up. You can't derive these conclusions, these very strong ideological conclusions from these isolated incidents. So I don't know... Actually, I do know what he's trying to do because he's not just trying to write a self-help book here. He's not just trying to... If he wanted to give you advice on how to raise your kids, he does that in this chapter. He gives three not terrible rules for raising children in this chapter. But it's not just about that. He has to pad the chapter with his ideology. Otherwise, how would you know what to believe? He goes on to say, a little bit further down, um, that there's a cultural preference for male children. Now we're getting into sociology, okay? So now we're now we're getting into other cultures, and we're getting into the problems, the very real problems of preferring male children over female children. And this has been codified into law in places like India and China. Now those laws have been overturned, but culturally, a one-child policy that favors boys is still in effect in a large way to the point where you have a 40 million surplus of men in these countries i did an entire episode on this by the way called too many men and i'll link to it in the show notes i already covered this entire topic that he's about to cover much more thorough thoroughly than he did in this chapter in fact his evidence is just his opinions that he he proposes here and here's what he does he he goes off on this whole weird tangent here um when it comes to where this where this concept comes from so he goes he talks he's talking about sex selective abortion in china and india and he says the wikipedia entry for that practice attributes its existence to cultural norms favoring male over female children and he put cultural norms in in scare quotes um that is literally where they come from. 
This isn't like a hypothesis. This isn't like, I wonder where this sex-selective abortion stuff comes from. Where could it, I guess we'll never know. I guess, you know, well, Wikipedia says it's cultural norms. What the fuck does that even mean? Well, son, if you knew what patriarchy was, if you, you know, believed in the literal thing called patriarchy that literally exists, that has existed in most governments throughout most of history, then you'd be able to understand why women are devalued. There's so much work on this very topic. Why are women devalued? You see it happening at different levels in all societies. Now, in India and China, you see the most extreme examples of this, where you have sex-selective abortion practiced, you know, before children are even born, and you have this giant surplus. And what is that surplus causing? It's causing an extreme rise in violent crime, because who's committing most of the crime in most of the world? Again, we're looking at one gender committing 98% of the violent crime, that's a bit disproportionate considering, you know, genders make up roughly, it's roughly a 50-50 split. And then you have people who are outside of the gender binary completely. But again, the, the crime rates for non-binary people are probably non-existent because, yeah, <laughs> uh, there's really not that many of us. So, uh, but yeah, like he goes on to say, and this is amazing how much of a little fucking liar he is he says there's no evidence to suggest it's cultural and i'm like what yeah there is yeah there's thousands of years of patriarchal rule with laws that specifically encourage aborting female fetuses like this is just so dishonest and agenda driven and and it seems like it's for no reason. But wait, yes, there is a reason because he wants to keep Western civilization boring and misogynist. He wants to keep it boring to his boring preferences. And right now, if we obviously I live in a country very different from China or India, and I'm very uh, fortunate to be born in the United States where you do have somewhat legal gender equality, at least on paper. I mean, it's not like it's practiced in the court systems or on a social or community level or in any real practical sense. But hey, it's on paper. So we must be equal now, right? Wrong. <sighs> yeah, I'm going to be sighing a lot in this one, too, because I just to look to, to say there's no evidence that such ideas are strictly cultural is a complete lie. And it's the first of many lies he tells in this chapter. And this is my problem with Jordan Peterson. It's one thing to take away the good from his book and take his self-help stuff that, you know, doesn't include his weird religious and, you know, ideological preferences. But it's another thing to flat out lie to your reader's face like this. Because if you're trying to improve your life, it's probably not great to Im improve it based on lies. I mean, I don't know. There's, I guess, like a fake it till you make it potential for self-help that, you know, is useful for some people that requires, you know, a level of delusional thinking. But this isn't delusional thinking in a kind of self-esteem way. This is delusional thinking in a facts-based way. We know why these cultures devalue women. We know that patriarchy 
causes the devaluation of feminine, what is perceived as feminine characteristics. And in fact, it enforces a gender binary that says, this is male, this is female, female is bad. Now, all of these categorizations are totally arbitrary. Old dead dudes made, made this shit up a long time ago. It's not as set in stone as people like Jordan, Jordan Peterson would like you to believe. And of course, that makes the world a lot more simple if we could just put things into nice, neat, tidy little boxes like men have peepees and women have hoo-hahs, but that's not how the world works. It's a lot more complicated than that. And because it's complicated, we need a little more nuance and understanding around a lot of these topics. That You're not going to find that in this book. He takes pot shots at women throughout this chapter constantly for seemingly no reason. Oh, wait, the reason is because he has an agenda. He goes into like, he tries to bring in like evolutionary psychology too, which like, dude, talk about a field that's misused probably the most by right-wing idiots is like evolutionary biology like first of all you're not an evolutionary biologist quit acting like you're a scientist you work in the liberal arts dude you're a liberal you're a liberal arts guy it's fine you deal in ideas and philosophy and soft sciences it's called soft sciences you're a psychologist psychology is made up And that's fine, because everything is made up, and it can be very helpful. You can have certain tools. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, I've had great therapists who were psychologists who, you know, had very effective tools, and they worked to overcome whatever problems I was dealing with. But ultimately, it comes down to these are just kind of made up things that are constantly evolving and changing and aren't really set in stone. And evolutionary biology isn't as set in stone as he would like people to believe either. So he says, uh, he goes on to say, this isn't just a cultural thing. This is just, you know, biological. He goes, if circumstances force you to put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, a son is a better bet by the strict standards of evolutionary logic, where the proliferation of your genes is all that matters. Well, you know what I have to say about this passage. I only have one word to say about this eggs that's right back to the eggs they love the eggs they're all about those eggs are those eggs fresh got those fresh eggs for me bitch yes eggs it all comes down to the the freaky eggs and and the opposite of the eggs which is that we need to proliferate the genes we need to well what will happen if we don't proliferate the genes oh no my special genes my genes are so special I've never understood that, and again, this is probably, you know, speaks to my uh, alienness towards the human species. I've never had the urge to make a little clone copy of myself that came out of me that, like, I could just mold into my preferences. That always struck me as weirdly narcissistic and kind of selfish, but I'm selfish for, you know, wanting to make sure kids have the best parents and best lives and uh, I choose to not have them because I could not provide that for them. So, right. So he goes into his weird, his like, oh, no, it's actually a totally rational. No, 
it's just based on sexism and it's not rational at all. Let's look at the consequences of having too many men in society, which you can listen to in the podcast I made about it. It's just a ton of violence, lots of violence, a lot more raping, a lot more raping and, and murdering than we already have. And uh, I kind of think we already have too much, especially in certain places. So, again, injecting the weird ideology. So, uh, you know, it's not weird. It's just typical. It's boring. It's traditionalist. It's the ideology that's been a dominant ideology in this country since its inception, for the most part. So again, this is old news. Then he starts talking about dynasties. Uh, let's see. He talks about... Um, he tries to go into the evolutionary biology thing, and it's just... And all of the, you know, rock stars who bedded thousands of women. Oh, wait, those weren't to make babies, though. Those were not meant to spread their seed. What if people just had sex for recreation? Hmm. Do any of these rock stars actually want those children that they had? <laughs> Let's be real. Let's be real that men don't have a lot of sex because they want to have a lot of kids, okay? If that were the case, maybe they'd stick around more. Maybe they wouldn't be abandoning their families. Hmm? Ever think about that? No. He gets into that, too, later on. In fact, I'm just going to skip ahead because... <sighs> This is just, he's so dishonest in this whole section. He's so just dishonest in this whole section. He's talking about Genghis Khan and, you know, all of these male descendants and, you know, just the, the proliferation of the genes, the eggs and the genes. And I just, I think quality, ha you know, means something i i don't think that you know people should just be willy-nilly having as many kids as they possibly can you're just adding more garbage into the world oh my god she just called children garbage look there are some kids who no matter how you parent them no matter what you do they're gonna be shit because they're shit people and the more of them you have the more likely you're going to produce a shit person. And that shit person is going to go into the world and create more shit for people who didn't ask for it. It's maybe kind of a brutalist take on kids. I mean, obviously, I'm not the most maternal person ever, but I, I don't claim to be. You know, I want kids to have good quality upbringings. And if you can create, you know, better quality people instead of just having as many people as you are physically able to, then I don't know, maybe those fewer kids will get better care and grow up to be better adults because they have better parenting. I mean, generally speaking, good parent, good stable parenting leads to more stable adults. And every now and then you get like an asshole who it doesn't matter where he comes from or how many great opportunities he was given or, you know, how well he was raised or how much money his parents had. He's just going to be trash. But <sighs> so, yeah, but he's talking all about this quantity thing. Oh, i got to proliferate the genes. And it's like, oh, God, like there, there are a lot of reasons why feminine perceived femininity, whatever that is, by the way, is devalued. So. 
But he's got his own agenda, and it's not necessarily just about raising kids. It's not making sure kids have the safest, most peaceful, most healthy upbringings, okay? It's about making sure you force your kids to be perfect so they don't, you know, do anything that makes you dislike them, which is going to be hard to do, by the way. I mean, you know, I think everyone reaches their limit with patience when it comes to their own children even if they whether or not they want to admit it you know and he is to his credit he is fairly realistic about this in the book he he does have a fairly realistic view of children and i can't disagree you know with it so then he starts talking about i just have a note here that just this sentence is disgusting to me just from a stylistic point of view like i'm just gonna shit on this sentence because i don't like the way it sounds to me He's talking about his clients. He goes, my clinical clients frequently come to me to discuss their day-to-day familial problems. Such quotidian concerns are insidious. Ugh. sentence made me just want to spit. Ugh. God, dude. Like, we get it. You know how to use a thesaurus. I just had to shit on that sentence. Yeah, I'm attacking this from all angles, stylistically and philosophically. (laughs) The writing is bad. The writing is so bad. Like, he spent so much time on, like, the Genghis Khan's shit that, like, it's like, well, what does this have to do with anything? Oh, men like to fuck. Okay. Men like to rape and pillage. Okay. Yeah, we already know this. Why is that? Why Why do men wage war all across the world? Well, you know, what is the reason for that? Is it just evolutionary biology? I don't know. I think it it's a little more complicated. <laughs> I want to jump ahead to get to a meaty sentence here that makes a bold claim. And we're going to see if this claim is true. So he's talking about different ideological problems and, you know, where does the corruption of individuals originate and if society is corrupt and how does this how who's the corrupt one and all this he goes our society faces the increasing call to deconstruct its stabilizing traditions to include smaller and smaller numbers of people who do not or will not fit into the categories upon which even our perceptions are based okay there's a lot in that sentence Our society faces the increasing call to deconstruct its stabilizing traditions. Pause. What does he mean by stabilizing traditions? Because there are a lot of traditions. I don't think any of them have provided a whole lot of stability if they're coming from his social conservative perspective. For example, let's go back to patriarchy broadly speaking rule for men by men it's a very simple concept i know it it triggers a lot of people but it's actually a very simple concept when the majority of people in your ruling class whether that's the political class or the tech class or the other social classes are men it's called a patriarchy as opposed to a matriarchy which would be ruled by women Now, what are the consequences of growing up in a society where maleness is valued and femaleness, again, if we just go by their binary that they came up with, 
what 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 are the consequences of growing up in that society if you're not the people who are being valued in fact if you're the people who are being devalued well it turns out it causes you a lot more difficulty in life it cuts off opportunities that other people have had it gives you a lot more hurdles that other people don't have to face and it changes the trajectory of your entire life and you have to play by entirely different rules it's not enough for me to just work hard and be diligent and, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps. If it were up to that, then that would be a fucking cakewalk. My life has not been that. It's been a constant onslaught of having to do things very differently than my male colleagues in order to get ahead. And if I even dare act the same as my male colleagues, I get punished for that. And again, I came into the world without a gender, I did not know that I was supposed to be any kind of way because I just was who I was. And it wasn't until they started socializing me to be a certain way that I realized things were different, that I realized I was being treated different. And I picked up on it immediately and it pissed me off because I was like, why can't I act the same as you know, fucking Peter and, you know, Bob and who the fuck else ever else. Clearly, things are different. And your life is very different when you grow up under the type of scrutiny that women do, specifically. Even in Western civilizations where you have more rights and all of that. I mean, this is not to mention that this is a very rare exception. Most of the world hates women so much that they kill them very easily for very petty things like driving so this is such fucking bullshit but yeah he basically so okay what stabilizing traditions what he calls stabilizing traditions are obstructing everyone else from self-development these are not stabilizing they're stable to a structure that has benefited people like him his whole life specifically people born to middle-class white households and he's heterosexual and cisgendered and again those are words that seem to weirdly trigger people even though they're just statements of fact he uh you know his life has not been that difficult he's had pretty much of a cakewalk and he heaps a lot of praise on these so-called stabilizing traditions because I'm sure he, and I can see why he would view it as stabilizing because it's been stabilizing for him, but it's been destabilizing for other people. This is why it's important to have perspective and be able to step outside of your own viewpoint to try to understand what other people are going through. To kind of go on in the sentence, we're going to keep moving on. So it includes, so they want to deconstruct these stabilizing traditions to include smaller and smaller numbers of people who do not and will not fit into the categories upon which even our perceptions are based. Uh, he is talking about me, not me specifically, but uh, outliers and, you know, smaller and smaller numbers of people. I Yeah, I'm a very... There's, yeah, percentage-wise, there's not a whole lot of non-binary queers out there, you know. 
there's more and more over time, which is good, but we're not seeing that, you know, we're, we're seeing those numbers grow, but again, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about perception because we will not fit into the categories upon which even our perceptions are based. Well, perceptions are molded by your environment and Perceptions can change over time. That's literally how progress happens. We change our perception of who's allowed to have rights. And society, broadly speaking, does do a lot of damage, specifically because of coercively enforced heteronormative traditions. This is the stabilizing force, you know. The st- a stabilizing force of heteronormative traditions is not stabilizing for people who fall outside of those traditions. In fact, Those traditions actively hurt them. It's not that these people are disregarded necessarily, although there's some, there is a strong case to be argued that people who are, for example, bisexual and non-binary who don't fit into a binary view of gender sexuality are erased completely and, and kind of ignored. But ultimately, these traditions are harmful. Like, And I want to know what's stable about these things. So what stems from these traditions? I want to know what's stable about bigotry, racism, and sexism. You know, yeah, ending any of these problems would be radical. He says, you know, he says in the previous sentence, we can't do it no matter how, you know, radical people want to. Yeah, ending those problems would be radical and a net benefit to society, even for the white dudes in it. But they don't really think of it that way. They think of it as when other people get their rights, they lose their rights, as if rights is some kind of zero-sum game. And it's not. Guess what? There's a lot of room for a lot of different types of people who don't fit your perception of what is right or wrong or good or bad. Because again, perceptions change. And we should, we should destabilize some of this stuff. This is, none of this stuff is, the onus is on him to prove that these things are good for society. That, that the violent enforcement of heteronormative values has been a net benefit. Because what's happening is the attack on that, the rejection of that has actually been a net benefit for people. It's the proliferation of that that gets gay kids kicked out of their homes and, you know, put out on the streets. I mean, it's it's so amazing the amount of damage these things have done to individuals because they're violently enforced on a broader societal level. And he's trying to say, well, you can't blame everything on society. And that's true. But when you have a society that is violent towards members that don't fit its perceptions of reality, then you have tyranny, basically. And he goes on again. This this chapter is very much ideological. This is not so much about parenting as it is about we need to keep up patriarchal heteronormativity as a societal glue. He goes on to say, thus, altering our ways of social being carelessly in the name of some ideological shibboleth, diversity springs to mind, is likely to produce far more trouble than good, given the suffering even small revolutions generally produce. Wait a second, so it's fine that society was altered in the name of his ideological shibboleth of 
patriarchy and heteronormativity? That doesn't seem to make sense. And also, he uses he uses diversity, which is a very interesting, interesting ideological shibboleth to uh, bring up. Diversity? What is his fucking problem with diversity? You live in fucking Canada. You don't have to see black people, dude. I mean, black people live in Canada. But indigenous people live in Canada. Lots of non-white people live in Canada. But it's a very fucking white place. It's super white. Like, he's, he's so afraid of diversity. It's hilarious to me. Like, oh my god, like, how is that gonna affect your life, dude? All it, all diversity does is make things a little more peaceful for non-white people. And again, this is wrong. Because you can look at places of you can look at multicultural centers around the world and they're thriving. I happen to live in one. It's actually great. I love the amount of diversity where I'm living right now. I've lived in places where the exact opposite was the case. I've lived in places where uh, I was the only white person in a neighborhood, for example, and it was fine. Like I've never had any problems with living in any place that's diverse. And if you have, I mean, I don't know, like, it was, I, I don't know what to fucking tell you. Like, the world is a diverse place. You better get used to it. There's a lot of people here. We got to figure out some way to get along. Okay. So he goes on to say, was it really a good thing, for example, to so dramatically liberalize the divorce laws in the 1960s? Uh, yes, it was, because women were treated as property and weren't allowed to have any rights whatsoever to divorce their husband. Even if their husbands were incredibly abusive. Women couldn't have their own bank accounts until the 1970s. I think people forget how recent this whole uh, attempt at gender equality stuff really is. Because this is not that, like, what? Of course it's a good idea. They should be able, man, a divorce should be as easy to get as a Happy Meal. You can quote me on that. I've been saying that since I got a divorce. I'd get five more divorces if I could. Not that I'd ever get married again. But getting a divorce what, and being able to get a divorce easily was actually very good for me. It was the best decision I've made. And also, what does this have to do with forcing your kid to be like you? I'm not understanding. This is a weird tangent off, you know, <laughs> this is a weird tangent that he goes off in to just bitch for a while and then like pretend like it has anything to do with raising children in any kind of way. And he goes on, it's not clear to me that the children whose lives were destabilized by the hypothetical freedom this attempt at liberation introduced would say so. Oh, really? Oh, really? Oh, wow. You mean, you mean the kids who no longer have to live in abusive households where two parents absolutely hate each other? Let me tell you a little bit of a personal anecdote from my life since he's all about some personal anecdotes here i remember being 12 years old and wanting my parents to divorce i remember desperately wanting them to get a divorce because they clearly hated each other and i 
remember thinking like, there's no way that this environment, yeah, I was a kid and I had this awareness. There's no way this environment is safe for me. Kids can tell when your parents hate each other. And guess what? That's not a good role model to set for your children. Kids are really smart. They're very perceptive. They can tell when grownups hate each other. And I could tell immediately. And the lesson that two parents staying together for the sake of the kids, by the way, which is the dumbest reason to stay together ever, there is no for that. If you care about your children, you make sure that they have the most peaceful environment that they can, the most peaceful and loving environment. And if there's hatred in your environment and it comes from your relationship, you are causing damage to your children. You are abusing your children. This guy would rather have kids suffer under child abuse than allow parents who just are not going to work out and are never going to love each other to get a divorce. And it's great that the laws changed. You know, it is awesome that the laws changed in the 1960s, but they didn't change fast enough culturally. Culturally, there there was this problem of, well, we got to stick it out for the children. I was raised in the 90s. And... My parents still believed and actually held this over my head for the longest time that, you know, we got to stay together for the kids. For what kids? It wasn't safer for me that my parents were always fighting with each other. It was actually extremely damaging. It was so damaging that I had to get out before I turned 18. I left and have been on my own since. And But what it set me up for was bad relationships where I accepted a certain level of abuse and violence because that's what I grew up with and that's what I saw was acceptable. When two people hate each other and stay together and do that in front of their children, you're teaching your child that they need to settle for an abusive relationship. You're teaching them that that's the way things are and that they can't do better and that they definitely shouldn't have the self-esteem to do better and that they should just shut up and take it. And when you just shut up and take it, that's when you die. That's when women get killed by their partners. And also, if you're uh, if on the other side of the coin, if you're a boy growing up, you you see that it's okay to treat women like shit. Depending on which, whatever way the abuse is going, oftentimes it's going both ways in a situation where two people hate each other. But kids will catch the lesson either that they should put up with abuse or that they should perpetuate it and it's okay because no one's going to stop them. And they're not wrong, necessarily, depending on the people you wind up with. So it's actually incredibly dangerous. It's much more dangerous to stay together for the kids if you hate each other than it is to just be a fucking adult, realize that you're not going to get along, and co-parent and do things in a reasonable, logical way. God, this is such dangerous advice. This is so bad. This is not, this is why, like, I really can't just take the whole, oh, well, at least he's helping people. No, he is setting them up to settle for abuse. And this is on him. Like, he didn't need to put this whole section in this book. He could have just kept it strictly to self-help, but he won't do it because he has to insert his ideological 
uh, beliefs into it and be not just insert it, but beat you over the head with them. And guess what? They're just wrong. Okay. So he goes on to complain more about the 60s. All right, Grandpa. He goes, they dwell uncomfortably. They meaning today's parents. Because uh, today's parents are terrified by their children, allegedly. He goes, they dwell uncomfortably and self-consciously in the all-too-powerful shadow of the adolescent ethos of the 1960s, a decade whose excesses led to a general denigration of adulthood, an unthinking disbelief in the existence of competent power, and the inability to distinguish between the chaos of immaturity and responsible freedom. That's a nice way to, uh, you know, think of things. Honestly, fuck his revisionist history. The 1960s were when people started getting pissed about things, not putting up with people's bullshit anymore. On a more massive scale, I mean, people had been not putting up with bullshit for a long time, but it's possibly one of the most productive times for activism in, in the history of the United States. You saw some of the most mobilization on a massive scale that you've ever seen to overturn these problems that stem from cultural patriarchy, which is bigotry and sexism and racism. So, yeah. I mean, again, you're not going to, like, trick me into thinking the 1960s were some terrible thing. You can obviously track social movements and see how many positive things came out of it and see how the government suppressed it. So he, he kind of says, one of the things he says, the unthinking disbelief in the existence of competent power. Um... Yeah, how competent was the power? Oh, let's see, they assassinated a bunch of civil rights leaders, and, like, that's the... Of course people had no faith in the system. How can you have faith in this system? It's incredibly corrupt from the very start. But you saw, especially in the 1960s, where you saw activists mobilizing and being assassinated and taken out by the government itself. So, yeah, people had a right to be skeptical and distrustful of the government, and I think it's having a healthy distrust of the government is a very good thing. <sighs> and he goes, this has increased parental sensitivity to the short-term emotional suffering of their children while heightening their fear of damaging their children to a painful and counterproductive degree. Better this than the reverse, you might argue, but there are catastrophes lurking at the extremes of every moral. Oh, yeah, actually, fuck yes, this is better than the reverse of abusing your kids. How is this even a debate? Yeah, of course it's better. Of course we should have, yeah, we should err on the side of slightly more sensitive than, you know, beating your fucking children and acting like an authoritarian douchebag and forcing them to, you know, trust the government and stuff. Isn't he supposed to be against the government? I guess he just picks and chooses depending on what his topic is. Sounds, you know, sounds about right. Oh, God. And then he, again, more ideology. He goes into shit talking about Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Now, uh, he goes on to say that if you... He, he does a sneaky little weaselly thing. God, they love to... Conservatives love doing this. They love taking a philosopher out of history 
saying like, oh, well, these were what he believed on a philosophical level. These were some of the things. And also, he was a terrible person. So if you believe this, you must be a terrible person, too. Like, they do this all the time. They love, like, they'll separate the art from the artist when it comes to, like, rapists and pedophiles and, you know, rock music and shit like this. But when it comes to, like, dead philosophers, if you even, you know, remotely believe in a you know a slight single principle of you know someone all of a sudden you're a terrible person because what about the things they did hundreds of years ago that were bad god this is so dumb this guy is not smart i just i just want my listeners and my listeners probably already agree with me but i I want this podcast to reach jordan peterson's listeners there are much better people again queer eye we're gonna we're gonna get to the Queer Eye episode you could watch instead that hits on some of these same points, um, but much better, of course. There are better ways. There are better people. This is a, an extremely dishonest technique, what he does. So he starts talking about Rousseau, and he claimed that, you know, uh, he had this belief in nothing was so gentle and wonderful as man in his pre-civilized state. So, you know, untarnished from the world of, like, society has imprinted on him. Now, um, like, it's it's a noble savage kind of concept, which has other connotations, too. But in this specific context, he's talking about, you know, how Rousseau believed in the corrupting influence of human society. And if you can separate from society, you can reach your kind of pure purest potential and or you're at your purest potential before you're sullied by society in a kind of, you know, blank slate mode. And then he goes, at precisely the same time, noting his inability as a father, he abandoned five of his children to the tender and fatal mercies of the orphanages at the time. Oh, wait, you mean a fucking old-ass philosopher was a bad dad? That's like the oldest story ever. Am I supposed to, like, am I supposed to just throw out all of, you know, his philosophy because he was a bad dad? Well, I'm already not, like, a fan of Rousseau anyway, so I already have but that doesn't negate that like sometimes he'll he would make some good points with things and speaking of people who hate babies this motherfucker later goes on to say that he tells this anecdote of this kid uh at the playground who stepped on his daughter's hands when she was on the monkey bars and he looked over at jordan peterson and like you know with an evil little look in his eye because he's a little piece of shit knew what he was doing and jordan peterson goes on to say that he should have thrown that child across the playground so it's okay to, to talk about throwing toddlers across the playground but apparently you know you can throw out all of Rousseau's philosophy because he abandoned his five children. See, this sounds like a problem. This sounds like something men do. Like, this sounds like a problem, again, of people not holding men accountable as fathers. You know, be, they're, they're allowed to shirk their responsibilities as fathers. Why are they so easily allowed to shirk their responsibilities as fathers in these societies? Hmm. Maybe... Because that's not seen as men's work, raising a family. Where do these ideas come from? Oh, wait, it's like it keeps coming back to the same fucking point. I'm like banging my head, like making the same point, And he's just 
it's like he refuses to see it. It's like, it's like there's a solution or there's an ex- there's a reason for why things are fucked up. Even in his own perspective, right in front of him, and he just like is like, oh nope, I don't know, I don't know what it could be. It must be feminism. But before we get to that anecdote, he he does make a point about bullying. He goes, bullying at the sheer and often terrible intensity of the schoolyard rarely manifests itself in grown up society. Ah, uh, what? Um, don't we have a president that kind of bullied everyone? Isn't bullying how you get into leadership positions in most places? Like, bullying is almost the backbone of power in this country. That's how you, like, I I don't like it, but, like, to say that, like, the most bullying you're going to face is in the schoolyard, that's insane. No, you're going to deal with bullies your entire life. And it sucks. And speaking of bull, like, honey, all your politicians are bullies. They had to be to get where they are. And this guy, Jordan Jordan Peterson, is bullying entire groups of marginalized people as a grown-ass man. A ton of people never grow up. A ton of people never become adults. A ton of people never stop bullying. Like, it's it's not just he, he mentions Lord of the Flies. It's like, yeah, kids can be terrible, and they often are. But, you know, those kids grow into adults who are also terrible. I mean why we maybe need different ways of parenting that don't rely on bullying and corporal punishment and guess what he covers that we're gonna get to that in just a second so yeah i mean he he mentions the bullying thing and then he goes on to talk about how the human capacity for self-control may be overestimated and uh he talks about unit 731 which was a covert japanese biological warfare research unit uh, yeah, it's super violent. It's almost like men create violence uh, wherever they go. <laughs> oh my god, this this whole thing is just. Oh, he go he starts going after hunter gatherer tribes, which like this is such a weird. Again, what a weird tangent to go off of. Like this again, this is pure ideology he's talking about in this chapter. It has very little to do with parenting. He talks about uh, rates of homicide in hunter-gatherer cultures, and he says, But the evidence strongly suggests that human beings have become more peaceful rather than less so as time has progressed and societies have become larger and more organized. So, wait. He he doesn't exactly explain. He he spends a lot of time talking about like indigenous, like violent indigenous tribes, and he's like, oh, but the societies become peaceful. So yes, statistically, I I am a believer in the whole society is becoming more peaceful over time kind of thing, and that's because we've specifically attacked certain things since for decades now problems that stem from sexism and racism and bigotry and all of these things we've had to like fight against them and that's and you know violence against those people has decreased violence overall has decreased because we've realized that like maybe it's not the best way to solve problems and it took us like all of history to do that um but yeah it's becoming more organized because people are becoming more peaceful and less likely to just kill each other over petty bullshit this is a good thing but 
Does that include colonization? I mean, how much violence had to happen for these larger societies to become more organized? Who forced them into order from chaos? Well, a bunch of fucking colonial pricks. So it really kind of calls it into question, like this whole idea that like, oh, things are becoming more peaceful and we're having more society, you know, like, yeah, um, I don't know. You, you, it's hard to whitewash the history of colonialism. It's it's hard to say that, like, did we have to go through all of that violence for things to be better? I don't know. I mean, we're here. We can't really... It's hard to undo a lot of that stuff, but I, I you know, question his whole perception on that, and specifically the perception of that whole... That whole argument is very dicey. He's talking about these... <laughs> These societies from the 1840s being violent, it's like, oh, what about modern European warfare? What about, like, what? <laughs> like, he's doing the per capita argument, and I get it, and I understand it, but it's like, wait a second, when we're talking about mass deaths here, and we're talking about violence, I mean, violence has been able to be done on a much broader, larger scale because of the Leviathan state. You know, how many people were killed under colonialism? How many people, like, we're, I don't know that we're more civilized because we use robots to kill people farther away. But that's my take on it. It's not because, you know, social norms have, like, conservative social norms have made things better. In fact, it's fighting against those things that have made things better for anyone, including conservatives. And he talks about, oh, children are damaged when those charged with their care are afraid of any conflict or upset no longer dare to correct them and leave them without any guidance. I can recognize such children on the street. Oh, wow. I'm so dramatic. Like, he's so dramatic in this. Um, and again, he doesn't talk a lot about authoritarian parenting at all. He talks about the children who were damaged from their, you know their parents who who were afraid of them. Well, how, you know, and he goes on again with this, but more often than not, modern parents are simply paralyzed by the fear that they will no longer be liked or even loved by their children if they chastise them for any reason. Really? Oh, modern parents are, are really like that? Well, mister, I'm going to need to see a citation that most parents even do this. Because I hear traditionalists trotting this line out about modern parents all the time, and I just don't see it. For example, I photographed homes for a living back in Florida, and I went into home after home, half a dozen or more a day, and observed middle to upper middle class families. And very few of them had this kind of meek, demeanor they they didn't seem that afraid of their kids all of them forced their kids into rigid gender norms and i mean you could look at the way the rooms were painted for example you can look at the ways that they gen they gendered everything in their house i mean they're raised in roughly like conservative views of gender and sexuality and stuff like that and i know about if I'm just thinking of a random sampling of the parents I know, I would say probably roughly 75% of them still believe in spanking and punishment. Very, very few 
do the whole hippy dippy peaceful parenting. We're gonna un unschool. We're gonna like you know let the kid pick its own name and shit like that when it feels like it. Like that's so rare. And I know a lot of hippies. I was one. It's not like I don't know a lot of hippies. It's not like I'm I wouldn't be drawing from a much larger sample size of people than I uh, you know this guy here. But what if that's just my feelings? What if that's just something I, you know, came up with? And, you know, what am I really, what do I really fucking know if I'm talking about? You know, I say it's one way. He says it's another way. How can we possibly know? Well, the Brookings Institute released a study <laughs> showing how often uh, or how many Americans believe in spanking. And wow, it lines up exactly with my perception of reality and not Jordan Peterson's perception of reality. More than 70% of Americans agreed in 2012 that it is sometimes necessary to discipline a child with a good, hard spanking. Now, spanking, hitting, how we categorize these things, there's obviously various levels. I got beatings as a kid. I don't know what spankings are. That sounds like a luxury to me, but I still think spanking is a form of hitting. And do we hit other adults to solve problems? No. I mean, you can, but it's going to cause you more problems than solve problems if you hit adults. You know, unless you're, you can, Obviously, self-defense is different, but more than 70%, and this is, again, this lines up with my experience of knowing a lot of parents and having conversations with them about this, because this is a huge consideration when you're having kids, right? Like, are you going to spank them? How do you discipline them? What do you do when they're doing weird things? Well, hitting them should probably be the last option, and despite his predilection for wanting to throw children across playgrounds... Um, <laughs> he does actually agree with that point later on. He says the least amount of force should be used when disciplining your children. But to say that the majority of modern parents believe in some kind of peaceful parenting thing where they're too afraid of their children and stuff like that, that's fucking delusional. Are there some parents like that? Yes. That's not the majority of parents. And this is what frustrates me about talking with conservatives. We live in such different worlds, such different realities that it's so hard to breach the in-between of those realities, you know? Like, the world that they believe exists is so based in non-reality. It's not statistically backed up. It's completely backed up by feelings. It's literally feelings over facts. And they think that the way they raise their spawn in relation to the way they observe other parents raising their spawn is the end-all be-all of perception. You know, they, they cannot see outside of their own perspective. And a lot of them, I'm, I'm sure I'll, I might catch some shit, you know, for being a childless barren witch or whatever, but uh, how can you know? You don't know what it's like to raise children. Okay, fucking save me i know you, you know spare me your fucking grief like i know what roughly how to raise children as far as like you probably shouldn't beat them you probably shouldn't abuse them you know outside you should probably vaccinate them you know things like that i i believe 
that I want to live in a better world and a more peaceful society, and that requires parents to be better parents and more peaceful parents. Um, but we're so far, again, we're so far from the peaceful parenting being a norm of any kind. And for him to insinuate, and by the way, he doesn't back up any of this with statistics. He literally goes based on his feelings. He's like, parents these days are too sensitive. They're too afraid of their kids. That's not backed up. It's not based in reality. So if he's such a liar about what reality is, how can you trust the rest of what he's on about? I mean, again, he, he makes some good points here and there, but you have to tr you have to wade through just mountains of bullshit to get to these rather benign self-help points you can hear in literally any self-help book that's ever been written. So, oh, God. Again, he goes, he goes, has a whole thing about, you know, how terrible the peaceful parents are. Oh, you know, they just believe that there should be no rules. And if they're, and if the kids' perfect natures are just, you know, they'll just be allowed to manifest themselves. And, you know, oh gosh, like, children will take advantage of you and blah 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 like again he's ignoring he's inflating a non-problem while ignoring an actual one when it comes to modern parenting and the actual one is that over 70 percent of parents think it's okay to beat their kids why do we live in such a violent society hmm i don't know maybe because we hit our youngest members of it and teach them that hitting is a way to solve a problem so is it any wonder these people grow up and hit each other and hurt people and bomb people and do all this shitty shit? I mean, some of it is human nature. Some of it is just like humans are violent. We're apex predators. We're, we have to fight against the nature of our own violence. We're basically animals. We're, we're like, you know, barely human like it, what is human is what civility is what sets us apart from the animals you have to make that choice to fight against if you have a violent nature for example i don't have a whole lot of violent tendencies but you know i think everyone has had them i think internally people have to be real with themselves and reckon with the fact that they're a fucking animal and that they're gonna have weird animal violent tendencies and you suppress those tendencies. You act civilized. You act right. You know, you, you don't let yourself be taken over by that whatever weird violent animal shit you have going on in your brain. It's what makes you better than the animals. So be better than the animals and don't fucking hit your kids. I don't know why this is hard. And then, yeah, he goes on to say he he tells the story of the kid that he wanted to throw against the thing, throw 30 feet down the field. He got so mad, but instead he 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 imagined throwing this child across the field and instead he just took his daughter to a different playground. But he said it would have been better for him if I had speaking of the little kid that he was going to throw. Ah, yes, throwing someone's bratty child across the playground is a sensible reaction. That's a great parenting tip. That sounds like a monkey thing to do. Sounds like a very fucking animal thing to do. And it's kind of it's kind of ironic because I don't know if it's earlier in the chapter or not. He does speak about 
how violent chimpanzees are and how Jane Goodall observed them ripping each other apart and like, you know, killing each other over petty things and stuff like that and how, you know, how violent they are. And and it's like, yeah, shouldn't we be different from that? (laughs) Uh, He talks about toddlers hitting their moms. Yeah, some kids are monsters and they're bad. Uh, whatever. Not bad, but, you know, like, that they can be bad. They're learning things. They're testing boundaries. You know, you have a right to defend yourself against a child, but you probably shouldn't be hitting them. So, he goes, (laughs) he goes on to say, a patient adult can defeat a two-year-old, hard as that is to believe. Yes, patience. Why don't we use patience instead of, you know, throwing children 30 feet across the playground. And he goes on to tell a bunch of stories about dominating children because uh, he's such a good parent. He has this weird thing, like he, he talks about babysitting this kid and who uh, his parent, his father told him that, oh, he never goes to sleep. He's such a bad kid. Like, and we just put Elmo on and he gets offended. He gets so offended by the suggestion of an Elmo video. He goes, I always hated that creepy, whiny puppet. He was a disgrace to Jim Henson's legacy. Whoa, dude. I think this says more about you than it does Elmo. Calm down. He gets weirdly, like, vociferous at very specific things. It's really, uh, it's kind of funny, actually. (laughs) Saying Elmo was a disgrace to Jim Henson's legacy. Good lord. Calm your tits, man. It's going to be okay. And then he talks about how he, you know, made this kid fall asleep by, you know, continuing to push him down and make him fall asleep. And then he wouldn't tell the dad how he did it because he goes, don't cast pearls before swine, as the old saying goes. So he thinks so little of this other parent because his this other parent has a different parenting style than him. So the don't cast pearls before swine is an old biblical thing. It's like, you know, don't. It's exactly what it sounds like. And yeah, that is harsh. That's like shitty. I mean, he he's he, and he's trying to say that, like, that's somehow way worse for the child than anything else. And I do not buy it. I don't buy it at all. And he goes on again. Modern parents are terrified of two frequently juxtaposed words, discipline and punishment. Again, citation needed for this. This isn't backed up by any evidence. This is just backed up by his feelings. <sighs> he talks about timeout. Timeout's a good thing. Sure, timeout's a good thing. Oh, here's some revolutionary advice. Stop texting and listen. He's talking about your daughter and if she needs more attention. Ah, yes, listen to your daughter. Revolutionary parenting advice there. Wow. I never would have thought of that one on my own. Then he talks, oh god, this is the best. He talks about the Skinner box, which you know is always going to be an excite. I love it when psychologists talk about the Skinner box. Okay, so the Skinner box is fr- f- was made by B.F. Skinner, and he found that he could manipulate the behavior of rats inside this box uh, based on certain food stimuli and stuff like that. And he had to mostly starve the rats to do it, by the way, to get them to comply. It's it's a really fucked up experiment if you look at it. Um, And he says, basically, you got to put kids in the Skinner box. (laughs) Parenting. 
then he talks about he brings Disney into. He talks about Sleeping Beauty, and he says the fault, the problem with Sleeping Beauty, which if you're familiar with the um, story, it's a princess gets cursed by a witch, and she's going to you know fall into a deep sleep, uh, you know, after pricking herself on a uh, spinning wheel, and uh, you know she she's been cursed. So her parents try to shelter her from all the spinning wheels, and. Uh, Actually, it would sentence her to death, which a good witch came and made it just to where she would fall asleep. But Maleficent is the evil witch. And what he's saying is the parents' effort to protect Aurora from any kind of spinning wheels shows that they're bad parents. It shows that they're like, oh, it's making her weak because it's not exposing her to the outside world. He completely misses, by the way, he completely misses the point of the Sleeping Beauty story. Because if he were to actually get the point of it, it would invalidate his whole premise. So he says, oh, well, they're trying to protect her too much, and this leads to her being weak. Well, no, the thing is, the whole point of it is that nothing they did would prevent the curse from happening. Because Maleficent is pure chaos. Maleficent, the evil witch, curses the princess it's a curse. It's what this story shows is that no matter how you try to avoid chaos by forcing order into everything, chaos will eventually arrive to you. He literally, again, he gets the point completely backwards. It doesn't matter what you try to do. The problem here is that evil forces are will come after you and fuck with your life, no matter how orderly and properly and how few spinning wheels you've allowed into it. By the way, in the original story, doors fly open and by magic a spinning wheel appears. So literally magic is involved. Like there's nothing the parents could have done. They were doing everything they could to protect their child. They're actually good parents as opposed to all of the other like mysteriously dead parents in fairy tales. (laughs) But yeah. It invalidates this whole premise. The chaos in Sleeping Beauty, just like the chaos in life, is inevitable. But he doesn't want to admit that because that would mean his whole book is bullshit. Whatever. People love bullshit. It's a New York Times bestseller that's obviously doing well. I mean, people love some bullshit, so... He talks about, yeah, if you don't discipline your children properly, they'll be lonely and dejected, and that will produce anxiety, depression, and resentment, and that will produce turning from a life that is equivalent to, that is equivalent to the wish for unconsciousness. Wow, that escalated quickly. If you don't discipline your kids, they'll get depressed and hope to die. God, the hyperbole here is like, he's hysterical. He's honestly, he's a hysterical man. Like, I can't, like, manage this this guy's emotions enough. Like, reading this book, in between periods of it being super fucking boring, there's periods like this where, like, he uses hyperbole to such a cartoonish fucking point. Like, this whole scenario escalated really quickly. And also, like, those aren't the only causes of anxiety and depression, you know? And also, like, are those things that make you not like your child? Wait a second. (laughs) Maybe you should get your child help. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's not that you didn't beat them enough. 
He goes, you can discipline your children or you can turn that responsibility over to the harsh, uncaring, judgmental world. And the motivation for the latter decision should never be confused with love. Ooh, Lord. More hysteria. Uh, also, there's like more than two options. Like, it's not like a, if you don't discipline your child in this way, you're doing it wrong and they're going to be totally fucked up. Like, there's a lot of different parenting approaches to take. It's not like it's just one or the other. But of course, if you live in Jordan Peterson world, you live in a black and white world where there's good and evil and right and wrong and chaos and order. And it's all nice and binary and it fits in its nice little binary boxes. Ugh. Boring. And then, oh God, oh my God, this is one of the things that he does, which I, I really hope... If if no one, if none of my Jordan Peterson fans listen to any other episode, they should listen to this one because I think this chapter, God, there's so many choice quotes in it. And I'm taking a little bit longer to go over with it because this, we're talking about the next generation here. Even though I'm not going to physically birth them, I care about them, you know, for my own reasons. He goes, in fact, there's a new variant of political correct thinking that presumes such an idea is adultism, a form of prejudice and oppression analogous to, say, sexism or racism. So, <laughs> ah, citation needed, my boy. Like, what is it? Like, so he's talking about adultism, which is, by the way, a term I've never heard of since I read this book. And I spent a lot of time in kind of lefty, you know, social circles and spaces online and stuff like that. I have literally never seen this. I've seen people push for child rights when it comes to, for example, emancipating from an abusive family. I, I am a believer that, you know, teenagers especially have rights and children have rights and they're not the property of their parents and they're not the property of the state and all of that. I have strong opinions about that. But I have never, ever heard of this term adultism, which basically says children don't have to listen to the to any adult or any kind of, you know, adult in authority and like they're totally free and like, okay, what? This is not a thing that exists, and no one, I guarantee you, no one is sincerely comparing this to sexism or racism. Which, by the way, he says doesn't exist anyway. Like, I love how he's going to morally outrage about this extremely obscure term that most people have never heard of, and then try to say that other people are saying it's just like sexism or racism, while he's wanting to uphold a western chauvinist patriarchal society that would just further the already existing racism and sexism that he says he doesn't believe in because we live in a gender equal society now god this guy's so mixed up in his thinking jesus he needs to be like defragged or something but yeah so this is a very rare non-widely practiced belief at all you know, you, let, why don't we come up with some things that actually exist as opposed to adultism? Because this isn't a term that exists. This isn't something. I mean, if it exists, it exists in such rare, tiny pockets as to be insignificant. You know, like those people that he wants to be insignificant. 
<laughs> you know, like those people he thinks he do- don't deserve rights because they challenge our perceptions of things. So what are some more common and destructive beliefs that are conservative? Circumcision, beating your kids, forcing them to go to church, not allowing them certain types of media to shelter them from things you don't like, killing them for being gay or trans, or just kicking them on out on the street and making them homeless. All of these things, all of these things are vastly more common than anyone bitching about adultism, much less the practicing of adultism. What a fucking liar. He's such a dishonest little prick. Yeah. Trying to, I, I really tried to give this motherfucker the benefit of the doubt, and I honestly think he's just a shitty person. He's a shitty person who lives in a black and white world and refuses to even explore nuance and uh, obviously has a huge disdain for women and people he perceives as too small and unimportant to care about statistically and yet they're also ruining western civilization that's a lot of power you're given to these marginalized people man whatever i hope you're scared oh god so he keeps bitching about this non-problem so he oh yeah he talks about how um you should you should reward attitudes and actions that will bring your child's success in the world outside the family and use threat and punishment when necessary to eliminate behaviors that will lead to misery and failure. This is all very abstract and subjective, by the way. Like, what what does success look like outside the family? What What are these broad... What do these things even mean? Eliminate behaviors that will lead to misery and failure. Well, you know, crushing a child's self-esteem through hitting them early on is probably a bad route to go. That definitely leads to misery and failure. And guess what? We do have studies also showing the long-term effect that hitting has on children. But he conveniently mentions zero of those studies in this entire chapter because it's much more important to focus on the 5% maybe probably 2% of parents doing the peaceful parenting thing. Yes, that's clearly the priority here. Uh, He says, we must be continually reminded to think and act properly. You mean like throwing a toddler across a playground? (sighs) So he's he finally comes up after all this bitching about ideology, he finally comes up with three rules, you know, for discipline and raising kids and whatever and he goes the first limit the rules all right yeah you know you you don't want to micromanage your child that's a good broadly applicable rule i guess it's very vague but sure i can agree with that the second use the least force necessary to enforce those rules that's great So it turns out he actually isn't about throwing kids across a playground. Um, He's for spanking. It sounds like some nebulous idea of spanking. And he argues a lot about how it's not damaging, whatever. I mean, the data tells a different story. But, you know, your feelings are very important, Mr. Peterson. So, yeah, you want to uh, teach, you know, teaching your kids how to listen to other people and how to 
act properly so you don't annoy other people. Again, like this, sh- your your behavior is within your control, but people's perception of you is beyond your control. There's no amount of right acting that is going to make certain people like you. You can be one of the most likable people in the world, and you're still probably going to come across people who don't like you, and they don't have to give a reason. They just don't like you, and there's no amount of convincing them. You know, you shouldn't be a fucking asshole everywhere you go, either. I mean, obviously, but... Again, you can't make the world conform to your behaviors. This is like a a fundamental flaw in this whole chapter is like, don't let your kids do anything that, you know, annoys other people or makes makes you hate them. You only have limited control over your feelings and you have no control over the feelings of other people. Hi, bitches about punishment and... He has a whole lot of excuses for why you should hit your child. Okay. That's dumb. You know, she he goes into uh, the power of no. Using no, he mentions a woman can say no to a powerful narcissistic man only because she has social norms, the law, and the state backing her up. Well, that's cute. We do? Really? I can say, I, I think again, sweetie. Um, <laughs> no has only worked in a limited capacity for me, because, uh, guess what? The state doesn't back me up. The law doesn't back me up. Cops definitely won't back me up. In fact, I have some very, I'll have to do a whole episode on uh, my wonderful personal experiences with the police, because, uh, you know, if you think the police hate women... You can't even imagine, you can't even begin to imagine how much they really hate women. Like, you you think you know how much the police hate women, you really have no fucking clue how much the system hates women. No, our, the no's are not backed up by anything. <sighs> I mean, and again, just showing that he believes that shows his perception of reality is wrong. So... The rules are, limit the rules. Principle two, use minimum necessary force. All right, all right. Now here's the third. Parents should come in pairs. Ooh-wee. Parents should come in pairs. Mommy and daddy. Oh boy, here we go. Gotta, gotta, have, a, gotta have a pee-pee and a hoo-ha to, to raise the baby. Right. Okay. I know, it's crude language. Get over it. So, yeah, he goes, Parents should come in pairs so the father of a newborn can watch the new mother so she won't get worn out and do something desperate after hearing her colicky baby wail from 11 in the evening until 5 in the morning for 30 nights in a row. Oh, yeah, he should be there to manage her emotional meltdown while not offering any parenting of his... Like, that is such a, a perfect... He didn't even realize he did it. That's such a perfect perception of what we expect mothers to do and what we expect fathers to do. A father just has to watch the new mother so she doesn't go crazy after being the sole caregiver for her child. Jesus, what kind of horrible fucking world? The, the, The world that conservatives made for us is so fucking dystopian and terrible. And it's the reason so many parents are fed up and angry. 
like of course women are of course women don't want to have as many children and they don't, they don't want to have children with loser men you know because we have to we know we're going to be burdened with the main fucking percentage of childcare so it, it's ridiculous and uh he's saying oh i'm not saying we should be mean to single mothers but that doesn't mean we should pretend that all family forms are equally viable they're not period Oh my god, this is so exhausting and uninteresting. Ah, yes, let's let's go after single mothers. I, I love how he, he has to take a jab at single mothers. You know, single mothers, the real, you know, destroyers of Western civilization, the real the real people destroying society and ruining the world is single mothers. Yeah, they're the ones dropping the bombs and colonizing the lands and raping and pillaging and oh wait oh wait no that's not single mothers single mothers are not doing all of that oh wow because you would have thought the way conservatives talk about single mothers that they are the root of all fucking evil you don't get a single mother without a fucking man abandoning his family that's the fact you don't have single mothers without deadbeat dads period and not all dads are deadbeat, you know, but if you have a single mother, you have a relationship that didn't work out for whatever reason. A single mother who left an abusive household is doing for her kids a much bigger service than sticking with an abusive man. And that's often the case when it comes to single mothers. They've had to remove themselves from a violent situation. And now that's not always the case. Sometimes this, the relationship just isn't going to work out. That's a very common thing. The relationship isn't going to work out. And because it's not going to work out, you know, it, to add that unnecessary strain on both adults and the child is wrong. And it's neglectful, bordering on abusive. So blaming, I, I get so tired of seeing single mothers blamed. Oh, you mean the parent who stuck around to raise the child? You know, no one ever shits on single fathers. You know why? Because there really aren't any single fathers. Because fathers would rather write paychecks to support their families than be burdened with raising the family. And I understand that, actually. I remember being a kid and wanting to be a daddy. I never wanted to be a mother. I always would... The, the way I conceptualize of a family in my mind... Because, like, as a child, again, like I wasn't imprinting... I wasn't imprinted with any kind of, like, gender stuff internally to me. Like, I, to, to explain the whole gender neutral thing, like, it, it was constantly confusing that people perceived me to be a girl and treated me as a girl because that was not my inner world at all. I didn't conceptualize of things in a gendered way. I did what I wanted and I had thoughts of my own. And when I saw my dad leaving for work and my mom staying home and raising the kids, I knew immediately which one I'd rather be if I were to ever have a family. I wanted a career. I wanted to make money and contribute to my family's growth through making money because even as a child, I knew that my mom's labor was being devalued, even though she was working very hard to raise us and sometimes was raising us as a single mother because sometimes my father wasn't always in the picture. And I saw how much harder that was and how much harder she had it and how it was thankless work and how much she resented it, quite frankly. A lot of mothers resent it. Because it is thankless work. And there's a whole bunch of 
threads on this. There's like an emotional labor mega thread that I always send people to that really like breaks all of this stuff down as far as, you know, who's doing the main amount of child rearing and stuff like that and who's getting the thanks for it and the amount of praise that fathers get for very little effort compared to the daily constant work that mothers have to go through is it's completely disproportionate and anyone can observe this this is very easily observable but yeah i you don't get to act superior to the parent who stayed to raise those children and you don't get to tell a woman to stay in an abusive relationship because two parents good one parent bad that's stupid you know what's better than two parents a bunch of parents in fact if we want to get into more uh, research, they're finding that polyamorous families where multiple parents are raising children in a community kind of based way seems to be a much more stable environment than even a two parent household where you have both parents trying to work and juggle a mortgage and dealing with, you know, economic instability and all of these problems that you're seeing on an economic level. It turns out two parents are maybe not enough. And one parent, that's often someone who's been in, a, in an unfortunate situation. Maybe their partner left them. Why? Why do, Again, I'm not understanding why the single mother gets blamed for being the one who sticks around to raise the children. It is more difficult for her. It's more difficult for her because she was abandoned a lot of times. Or for some reason, things didn't work out and she's not getting the support she needs and there's not enough resources, there's not enough people coming in around her to help her with the child rearing. And if you come from a bad family, for example, and you escape your family and try to start your own, you don't have that family structure that you can depend on. Some single mothers are luckier than others. Some of them have healthy families that, you know, their their parents will watch the kids or whatever while they're able to work and all of that. That's a, that's very privileged. A lot of single parents I know don't necessarily have those support systems. They have to do it all on their own, and it's incredibly difficult to do it all on their own. And again, this is why, you know, it is good to have a little more discernment with who you're starting a family with. You shouldn't just start a family because you feel like you have to. That's a very selfish thing to do. You shouldn't just have a family because you got pregnant. You know, being pregnant does not obligate you to, you know, make someone else's life that much more difficult because you didn't have your shit together when you got pregnant. And if you're in a situation with an unstable partner and find yourself pregnant, you know, you're, you're going by bringing that child into the world and trying to raise it in such instability, you're going to cause damage. So, again, like, this is why I say I'm not just pro-choice, I'm pro-abortion in a lot of cases. Or pro I'm very pro-adoption, too. I mean, that's even, that's probably, that's actually the best case scenario. But again, adoption's difficult. Some kids can't get adopted. Some ki I mean, there's so many unwanted kids. Why add to more unwanted, why add more unwanted kids to the world? Why increase suffering in that kind of way? So... Oh, here's some more hyperbole I found. He's he's talking about uh, the resentments that comes that come from the too nice and too patient parent, like your kids resenting patient parents. Okay, 
And he goes through this whole escalation of, like, what happens when your kid, you know, when you're too nice to your kid, and it ends with, and this is the only, and this is only the beginning of the road to total familial warfare conducted mostly in the underworld underneath the false facade of normality and love. Jesus Christ, he's so dramatic. And th- all this drama, all this tizzying stems from worrying about nothing. From worrying about a non-real problem, the problem of two permissive parents. First of all, they're not your kids. Two. I don't even know why I didn't mention that at the very upfront. Like, they're not your kids. Shut the fuck up. God. Worry about your own life. Well, I guess if he just could only worry about his own life, he wouldn't be writing a fucking self-help book. God. I mean, he even, he just keeps going. He just keeps keeps going you know talking about the chaos of this you know and it it can get murderous he says it can get murderous you know if the resentments build up it can get murderous you know what can get murderous when your parents are physically abusive that that's how it can get pretty murderous pretty quickly did you know that that's, that's a much more common occurrence, actually. A child accidentally being injured or killed because a parent was hitting them. Oh, but yeah, let's worry about the people who were, you know, you know, a little bit nervous of being mean to their kids. Good fucking lord. And this is, uh, this is a great thing. This is a great way of thinking about children. By the way, the whole, his whole way of thinking about children in this is very much treating them as if they're property, as if they're like little clumps of clay that can be molded if you just set them in the right rules and with the right order and with the right amount of discipline. You just, you just put this little, this little piece of clay into your little perfect parenting formula and they're going to come out a fully formed person. It's not how anything works. Things are messy. Things are chaotic. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. But it depends on what you think your primary duty of parents are. What is So this gets to the root of what he thinks about parents. It is the primary duty of parents to make their children socially desirable. Yikes. Really? It's not the primary duty of parents to make sure that their child is loved and supported you know, in their creative endeavors or their business endeavors or anything like that, or to provide for a peaceful, stable household or anything like that. Nope. The primary duty of parents is to make their children socially desirable. Socially desirable to who? Socially desirable to what? What is socially desirable? Where do the desires of society stem from? What premises do they stem from? Because if you really deconstruct this, to conform to society as it exists now, and let's just say in the United States or Canada, very similar, you know, cultural practices, is to say that, like, you want to raise a child that conforms to heteronormative uh, practices, basically. And, you know, these kinds of more traditionalist social structures, which sounds boring as fuck. Why would you want to force your brilliant, unique, you know, one of a kind child into the to just be a cog in the system, to just be a cog in this fucking 
to be socially desirable to a society that fucking doesn't even value half of the population. Fuck that. That's that's not good parenting to make your child socially desirable. That's authoritarian parenting and there's a reason he doesn't touch on authoritarian parenting at all in this chapter because it's actually what he kind of wants he's like focusing on this cowardly parental you know cowardly parental attempts to avoid day-to-day conflict and discipline and you know not you know oh we can't reward individuality like blah 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 blah. these aren't real problems he wants to crush any amount of individuality and nonconformity and make you into this socially desirable little, I guess, clone of him or something. Because he's done such a good job of following the rules his whole life. I'm sure he's such a rules guy. Like, this is a guy who'd call the cops on you so fast. Like, well, well you didn't follow the rules. Like, this guy was like a tattletale in school. Like, this guy was your hall monitor. He was... You know, he could have been a cop in another, he probably would have been a detective, like he's smarter, he's slightly smarter than the average street cop, so they'd probably make him be a detective of some kind. He's your PTA mom who, you know, has a whole Robert's Rules of Order that she runs the fucking PTA meetings by. He's every nagging rules person you've ever met. He's obsessed with it. He loves the rules. You gotta, you gotta follow the rules. I followed the rules. You gotta follow the rules. This guy hates creativity. He hates anything that's outside of the box thinking, unless it is in the outside of the box thinking that he considers outside of the box. And you have to remember his frame of reference is really boring for what is creative thinking. I mean, this guy lacks a lot of imagination and it's pretty obvious. But yeah, again, he's just harping on non-problems in the place of real problems and of course he ends with do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them well again that's it's very forceful the whole con the whole title of the chapter it's all about how to force your kid to conform to your worldview and yeah, there's a reason he doesn't touch on any authoritarian parenting, because the majority of parents already parent in that way. This is not news. This is not even remotely interesting. Anyway, this episode has been longer than usual, and it's time to get to the good stuff. Okay? Seriously, I got some good stuff for you. I got some wholesomeness. I'm going to bring you up. I found... The perfect Queer Eye episode that, I mean, it's it's like, oh my god, dudes, it's so perfect. Like, I impressed myself, not gonna lie. So, <laughs> the episode of the Queer Eye that you're gonna want to watch instead of reading this boring-ass chapter and listening to my bitching about it is Season 2, Episode 7, and it's called Bedazzled. And it's about an 18-year-old boy named Sean who's been homeschooled his whole life, and he's a musician. And he's about to go off to college. And he's been raised by his godmother, Lulu. Oh no, a single parent! What? 
Um, so Lulu is his godmother who's done everything for him, raised him since he was an infant, and it doesn't go into his background very much, but it kind of does imply that Lulu took him in rather unexpectedly, and of course she loves him and cares for him, and he considers her his mother. And it doesn't say what happened to his parents, but apparently they were, uh, not good parents, or else... He wouldn't be living with his godmother. So kudos to the only adult for stepping up in the situation and showing him love and adopting him and making sure he's well taken care of. And this woman loves this kid. It's so wholesome and cute, but she does kind of... So she's done everything for him. She, like, books all of his own shows because he's a musician, and she's in charge of his fashion choices, which include these really gaudy suit jackets that have, like, Sean emblazoned on the back. Like, it's really cheesy. He's very shy and introverted and doesn't have a lot of friends his own age, and she's, you know, brought him around her much older friends, and so he kind of has an old soul, and he kind of has the mannerisms of a much older person because he spends a lot of time around people in his godmother's age range and so she's kind of sheltered him a little bit and in a way she's almost an example of what peterson is talking about when he spends this whole chapter shit talking about like you know kind of smothering parents or parents who you know haven't let their children you know grow and stuff like that he doesn't touch on it a whole lot but like she's you know very protective of him and all that but what this has done is kind of socially stunted him so uh even though but even though he's shy and socially awkward he's a really pleasant sweet respectable kid that older adults want to be around so despite i mean the awfulness of her being a single mother and being you know very uh concerned with managing his musical career and stuff like that he's obviously turned out super well adjusted he's just a little awkward you know the same way that all homeschool kids are kind of awkward you know they haven't had a lot of time socializing with kids their own age but you know he's not a bad kid at all. He just kind of lacks his own identity. So the Fab Five comes in and they try to help him find his own voice so that he has more of an independent identity. And so Tan wants to focus on Sean expressing his true self through his wardrobe, and Karamo wants to encourage his self-esteem post-high school and into college, so he enters college with this kind of confidence, and Karamo spends a lot of time teaching him the basics of small talk and socializing. There's this really cute scene where they go to this uh, gun shop right before they go paintballing, and he tries to meet new people and socialize, and they end up playing paintball together. And it's a really kind of awkward scene because the kid is is trying so hard, and he you can just tell he's not, it doesn't come natural to him. But he loosens up and he gets more comfortable. And also, Karamo Karamo's great in this episode too. I mean, they're all so great in this episode. Uh, like, Bobby has this really good heart-to-heart with Lulu, his godmother, about, like, raising adopted kids and, you know, the love that she has for him. And she doesn't want to smother him. She actually realizes the key to his growth is to let him go and, like, learn things on his own. And I think that takes a lot of strength to admit, you know, as, as a as a parent who came into an emergency situation where, you know, other adults were not reliable and 
you know, she did this all on her own. And they're obviously very close, and it's, it's really sweet. But yeah, Karamo encourages, is very encouraging of him to be more of, like, a kid than, like, an older adult. Like, he very much, like, kind of even has some of the mannerisms of, like, an older adult. Um, but then he kind of, like, loosens up, and he, he gets more comfortable. Uh, you know, Bobby redoes his space, so it seems more, uh, you know the apartment that he's going to be living in so it seems more you know young and you know for for a kid basically for an 18 year old who's going into college and it's so great because you see like the kind of micromanagement of lulu and then her like letting go and like letting him grow and letting sean like come into basically to be more of a boy than like an older man and he feels so lifted and happier at the end. It's so noticeable. You really see like a huge difference in his posture and his facial expressions in everything by the end of the episode. I mean, they really turn this kid's life around. And it's so, it's so noticeable. And in a discussion with Karamo at the very end, Sean says, it's not like I wasn't happy before, but it really opened my mind. And it goes on further. And as long as you believe in yourself, anything life throws at you, you can handle. Ah, and it's just so sweet. And Tan connects him with this style that will help him be a conversation starter to kind of help with his social anxiety, too. So that's really cool. So Tan gives him, like, this kind of physical makeover that is, you know, kind of attention, like, you know, kind of flat. I mean, he's a musician, so, you know, he wants a little bit of flair or whatever. So, you know, it can be kind of a conversation starter, and that's really good. Uh, that'll help him with his social anxiety. So he's got a whole new wardrobe, and it, it's just, like, one of the most wholesome episodes ever. And so, yeah, it turns out connecting with your kid self can be extremely healing. You don't always have to be a kid who's conformed to the social norms of, you know, whatever fucking boring society that you live in. You can be a kid that adults want to be around and that also kids want to be around and connecting with that inner kid can be super healing. It obviously was for Sean. The moral of the story is not only does Sean seem like a sweet, well-adjusted boy, but he got that way by being raised by a single woman who is not related to him and five gay dads. So yeah, he's going to have a bright future and you guys can watch that episode instead because it is one of my favorites, and it also sums up this chapter in a much better way than Jordan Peterson ever could with his boring-ass fucking social conservative bullshit talking points that aren't even based in reality. So, anyway, that's it for this episode of Iconosass Peters Out. Don't let your kids do anything that makes you not like them, or let your kids have five gay dads. <laughs> So I will be tackling the next chapter pretty soon, and thanks for listening. As always, if you like my stuff, you can subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes, or on Patreon, and I am super stoked for 2019. So thanks for joining me, and see you next time. 